This is Curl Up with a Cat Tale, and I'm Gwen Cooper, the New York Times bestselling author of numerous cat-centric titles, including Homer's Odyssey, A Fearless Feline Tale, or How I Learned About Love and Life with a Blind Wonder Cat, Spray Anything, More True Tales of Homer and the Gang, and The Book of Possum, Head Bonks, Raspy Tongues, and 101 Reasons Why Cats Make Us So, So Happy. We're here to celebrate all things feline and to tell inspirational cat tales. Let's get started. Hello, and welcome to an all-new episode of Curl Up with a Cat Tale with Gwen Cooper. I am Gwen Cooper, your host, and delighted, just so delighted, as I always am, to be here with you today. I am particularly delighted this week, and I will tell you why. I'm in an especially good mood, and that is because this coming Saturday, I want to say April 27th, um, no, wait, is today, is it, what is... Hold on a second. I just, this is really bad. Let me look. So today is the 24th. So that means it's the 29th. There you go. Um, <laughs> this Saturday, April 29th, is National Independent Bookstore Day for those of us here in the United States. And possibly in your neck of the woods, there are some indie bookstores planning on on having some sort of festivities to mark the occasion. I can tell you that here in my neck of the woods, um, there is going to be a Brooklyn book crawl on Saturday. Basically, a bunch of Brooklyn book independent bookstores are participating. You pick up a passport at one participating bookstore. And the idea is to see how many stamps in your passport it gets stamped at, you know, you can get over the course of the day. And each bookstore that you go to puts a stamp in that passport. And if you get five stamps in your passport, and again, you don't actually have to buy a book in order to get a stamp in your passport. You just have to visit the store. Although, I mean, me being me, let's let's be honest. Um, but we'll come to that in a moment. But anyway, if you get five stamps in your passport over the course of the day, then you can return to any one of those bookstores during the month of May and get 25% off of your entire purchase, not the purchase you make on Saturday. Obviously, it does not apply retroactively. But if you go back to that bookstore during the month of May and buy more books, you get 25% off on top of that. Um, the Center for Fiction, which is located in beautiful downtown Brooklyn. I am using the word beautiful somewhat facetiously here, but nevertheless, that is where they are located. Um, in addition to participating in the Get a Stamp in Your Passport, the the bookstore crawl aspect of it, um, in addition to that, if you buy one of their tote bags on Saturday, you can, it's, what is it? It's it's like a book grab and carry, I think they're calling it. But basically you buy a tote bag and you can fill it with as many books as you want from their sale table. So for the price of a tote bag, you can walk away with a tote bag stuffed full of books. In addition to which they are also having a party from five to seven at the bookstore to celebrate National Independent Bookstore Day. So there's going to be drinks and and raffles and contests and all that sort of thing. So if this is of any interest to you and you live in the tri-state area, I well, I encourage all of you to check out any National Independent Bookstore Day activities that may be going on in the independent bookstores in your own area. Um, I realize that technically speaking, I am not talking about cats right now, but 
I have to assume that many of you listening are interested in books, as I am. Uh, so yeah, it, it should be a lot of fun. And if you are in the tri-state area and you're thinking about doing the Brooklyn Bookstore Crawl, I can tell you that come 11 a.m., which is when the Center for Fiction opens, come 11 a.m. on Saturday, I am going to be there to buy a tote bag and get first crack at that sale table. And I am going to stuff that tote bag until it seems are bursting with as many books to, with as many books as I can fit in it. Um Here's my dilemma. Here's my problem. So I am essentially at capacity on the bookshelves that I currently have in my house. And I've kind of been operating on a, you know, one in, one out principle for the last couple of months, ever since I, I hit capacity. So basically, anytime a new book comes in, Another book has to go out, um, which is not so bad necessarily. I, I've talked before about the big annual book sale that I do, and it's always a lot of fun. And I do feel always a lot of sadness in seeing books go off of my shelves. But it, the, the, my my annual book sale is a really fun day, and I raise money for local cat rescue, and so so that's all good. But of course, if I go on a big book buying spree this weekend, um, I'm not really sure how that's going to work or where I'm going to put the books I come home with. And and I suppose I could just stack them up somewhere. But I, you know, I the reason why my, my house is at capacity for books is because I, I did make a decision at some point that I, I don't want to live in a house where all of the rooms are, are essentially libraries, um, because that is a situation in which I could very easily find myself without it being too much of a stretch. So I'm not sure. I mean, I, you know, I, I just, I don't, so I don't want to have like stacks of books all over the place or start putting bookcases in rooms that otherwise are not book rooms. Um, so, you know, the problem with, I mean, I could even just kind of leave them on the floor in front of the bookcase and, and let them organically work their way onto the shelves as space becomes available. The only problem with that, of course, is that Clayton is so, Clayton is, is who's oh, the greatest cat in the world. I mean, let me just start out by saying I probably don't talk about him as much as I otherwise would on the podcast because I'm just so crazy about this cat. And and I think it would become very annoying to listen to after a while. So, but here's one of the downsides. Well, not really a downside. I mean, this is, you, you know, the quintessence of Clayton, right? He he is exactly who he is. And I love every little thing about him. Um, and because he is a tripod, because he is a three-legged cat, and moreover, because he's missing one of his hind legs, he doesn't stand up to use a scratching post. He prefers to lie on his side, which is fine. I actually got him a like a floor-based scratching post. I mean, obviously all scratching posts rest on the floor, but this is a a horizontal one as opposed to a vertical one. So he can it's very easy for him to lie on his side and just go to town, you know, just really have at it. Um, so that's all well and good. But the problem is that he tends to think that anything that's on the floor that can be scratched is there for him to scratch. So he doesn't claw up like shoes or things like that, but he goes after books. Um, like I can't even begin to tell you. He like, like they were his enemy, like in a past life, 
books somehow really wronged Clayton, and now he is on a quest for vengeance. He is going to balance the scales, and he is going to do so by destroying any book that I leave on the floor, or really anywhere where he can get it. I mean, this also goes for books that are left on the bed. Clayton just really loves destroying books. It It is, and, and I've never lived with another cat who is so into destroying books. I don't know if this is a common cat thing. Maybe some of you guys can can chime in on this in, in the comments or, or hit me an, an email. I mean, he will it, he will claw them up. Certainly, I mean, hard cover books with dust jackets, forget about it. Um, I have one of those. It's, it's called a sapien book stand. And basically, it is it's like a tower. Um, so you can stack the books vertically instead of horizontally. Um, so it almost looks, I mean, it just looks like, like the, a giant stack of books as opposed to a traditional bookshelf. It's great. It, it's really, I think, aesthetically interesting and it's also a great space saver. But anyway, um, you can, you know, we, we cannot put any hardcover books and dust jackets at the base of the stack because Clayton just mercilessly scratches up the dust jackets. I mean, just rips them to shreds. Um, he will also, any book that I leave lying on the bed, basically anywhere where he can get it, at, um, he will kind of instantly dig his claw. He just loves, I think the feeling, even with trade paperbacks, he loves the feeling of his claw digging into the cover of a book. I wish this were not the case. I'm I'm not really sure why he's so into this, but but so he is. So we we do have to be careful about book storage in our house. Um so I'm not really sure what I'm going to do. I'm not sure how it's going to work out. The the other thing is that, you know, I also recently made a policy that I and this was before I knew um that this weekend was national books you know independent bookstore day or that there was going to be a big brooklyn bookstore crawl this was a decision i made about a month ago and that was to not to not order books online anymore i'm only going to buy books in person in stores um not because there's anything wrong with buying books online i sell the majority of my books online so there there's i obviously have nothing against buying books online um i just find that when I'm buying a book online, it's usually because it's been recommended to me by another reader or I've read something about it. And what I'm finding these days is that after reading a bunch of things about a book and how great that book is and, oh, it's one of the greatest books of the year, you got to read it, you have to read it right now. And then I read the book and it's a good book. It It just... I find that I keep thinking to myself, I mean, it's a good book. It doesn't seem worth all the hype that it's gotten. And I feel like I used to enjoy reading more when I just when I didn't know anything. I mean, I know so much now. I mean, obviously, I, I you know, back in the 90s, which is what I'm going to talk about in a moment. But back in the 90s, I was just a reader. Now I'm a reader, but I'm also a, a writer. I I have, you know, prof- I mean, I don't want to say I work in the publishing industry because I think that's probably overstating it, but certainly I, I work publishing adjacent. I mean, I know a lot more about how the publishing industry works, how books become successful or, or you know, remain unsuccessful, um, how critics kind of all converge on a particular book and decide that it's the book of the season. I know a lot more about how the sausage gets made, uh, but it's not even that so much as, as, I mean, I remember, you know, back in the 90s when I lived in Miami, and this is, I'm going to say before, not only online shopping, but also before I would read 
about books online, you know, before I was reading book reviews and publications that I didn't have a physical subscription to. Um, I didn't have any physical subscriptions to any publications that that wrote about books. I suppose I could have, but I just didn't. Um, and there wasn't a ton of of books coverage in like the Miami Herald or the Sun Sentinel. Um, and again, I, I could have more actively sought out book reviews or or publishing industry news or anything like that. I just never felt a, new, a need to. Um, I would walk into a Borders um, or a Barnes & Noble or, I mean, sadly in Miami, we didn't really have much in the way of independent bookstores. We had Books and Books, which is an amazing, amazing bookstore. Um, but that was about it in the 90s. I don't, I'm, I'm hoping that's changed since then. But it was Books and Books, Borders, Barnes & Noble. That was pretty much it um, south of, let's say, Palm Beach. And I mean, a couple of used bookstores. Anyway, the point being, I would walk into a bookstore knowing nothing and I would just pick up books and read the back and read the description and see what the pull quotes or the blurbs had to say and make a decision there whether or not I was going to buy that book. Now, so many of the books that I have are books that I have read something about already, and that's why I'm ordering the book online, or I'll be standing in the bookstore and, oh, it's so obnoxious that I do this. But before I decide to buy it, I will look up to see if there, if it's been reviewed anywhere, what the reviewers have to say, what Amazon reviewers, what, you know, just regular readers have to say about the book. And part of the reason that I've started doing that in recent years is not just because you can do it now. Back in the 90s, obviously, there would have been no way to do any of this. Um, it's not just that. It's, you know, you, you get older. And and I think I've discussed this before on the podcast, but you realize you're not going to get to read all of the books that you want to read. You're not going to live long enough to read all the books that are worth reading. And so I think I have it in my head that, you know, my book reading time is is a lot more it's a lot more constrained. And so it's a lot, you know, I have to make the most of the time that I have left. And I just think it's like, like there's a whole, you know, so so now I am buying books based on these critical reviews and saying, oh my God, this is the greatest book of the year. You have to read this book. You're, you're, you're a schmuck if you don't read this book. And I, like I said, I, I find that I'm enjoying the books less because I think at a certain point, you know, critics are in the business, right? Especially book reviewers. They're, it's it's kind of their job. If a book is terrible, that's one thing. But if they like a book, their job is to get you really excited about it. But by the same token, you know, and, and every year there's a book or a handful of books that all the critics decide, you know, these are, this is one of the best books of the year. Um, but almost nothing can really live up to that kind of hype. And I'm not an especially fussy reader. I mean, I'm the, I'm, I'm the kind of person, and this is literally true, if I'm having a meal someplace and, and I'm by myself and I have nothing – I mean, well, this doesn't really happen much anymore because now everyone has their phones. But before there were smartphones, if I was having a meal, whether at home or in a restaurant, and I just happened not to have anything to read handy with me at the moment – um, I will read the ketchup label. <laughs> I will read, literally, I will read the labels on the condiments just for the sake of having something to read. So I, I am not an especially fussy reader. It it really takes a lot for a book to actually disappoint me, or at least it used to. And I think now, like I said, I'm letting too much critical noise get into my head um, so I think I'm going to go back to 
just going to bookstores and finding books on the shelves or on the table up front that look interesting or asking the booksellers, hey, what are you interested in? What are you excited about these days? And I'm going to see how that works out for me. I also figured that it would result in my buying fewer books, right? Because I don't visit bookstores in person nearly as often as I sit in front of a computer or or have my my smartphone in my hand. Um, so it, there, there was also that practical benefit as well. But of course, now, now I'm going on a bookstore crawl on Saturday and, and a fill up this bag with as many books as you can carry kind of a deal. Um, so, so that's probably going to go a little bit out the window. I don't think it's actually going to result in a reduction in the number of books I buy in the immediate short term. Um, but you know, speaking of serendipity, in, in finding books in bookstores, that actually leads me to the other thing, the, the cat-centric thing that I did want to talk about today. Um, because I, I was thinking about it. I was in one of my favorite indie bookstores a couple of weeks ago, uh, a bookstore called Three Lives and Company here in New York City. Um, if you've ever seen the movie Bright Lights, Big City with Michael J. Fox based on the novel Bright Lights, Big City, there's a scene where he goes into a bookstore with a you know, with on a first date, um, this is the bookstore from that movie, for whatever it's worth. So obviously the bookstore has been there for a while because that movie was made way back in the 80s. Um, but Three Lives and Company, one of my favorite bookstores, really cool mix of like all the bestsellers you would expect to find, along with some really interesting titles in a very small space. It, this being New York City, it's a bookstore in a very, very small space. Um, they really managed to cram a lot of books in there. Maybe I should actually take some cues from them in terms of fitting more books into my small space. But anyway, I found a book on the table and it was called Honey, I Killed the Cats. And it was a novel translated from Polish, I mean, a contemporary novel um, translated from Polish. And I ended up buying the novel because, you know, the title had caught my attention and I was horrified and I picked it up to see what what kind of terrible novel about killing cats this was going to be. I read the description. There did not seem to be any cats at all in the novel. And in fact, there were not. I mean, the description actually sounded like an interesting novel that I would read. So I bought the book and I read it. And it's not even just that no cats are killed. There are no cats at all in the novel. But it got me wondering, and I don't really have an answer to this question, but why it is that the idea of of, of harming cats is somehow considered humorous in ways that harming dogs or other animals would not be. Um, I'm not exactly sure why this novel was called Honey, I Killed the Cats when there are no cats at all in the novel, but I am confident that it would not be called Honey, I Killed the Dogs, right? Because that that would just sound terrible. You know, honey, I mean, and this is a novel, by the way, like like the the author is very young and it's a novel about very young characters, you know, nightclubbing and doing hip stuff and blah, blah, blah. So I, I think there there's a sort of like, you know, the idea was for it to be kind of shocking and funny, like, you know, kind of edgy um, in a sort of humorous way. It's just that I don't think anybody would think there was anything edgy or humorous about the title, Honey, I Killed the Dogs. Um I, for the record, don't think there's anything humorous about the title or edgy about the title at all. Like I said, I picked it up, prepared to be outraged, and then said, huh. So I guess in that sense, maybe the title did what it was supposed to. But nevertheless, the fact remains, why is that 
okay. I mean, here here's another example, and I think I've talked about this before. Um, the TV show The Office, which was a television show that I loved, and I watched. I've seen every episode. Um, I watched all eight or nine seasons, whatever it is. Um, definitely shows really into an end. As some of you may recall, one of the characters, those of you who watched the show, will remember the character Angela, a a, a very sort of uptight character who's played. I mean, it's a sitcom. All the characters are played for laughs. Um, one of her funnier, or or you know, one of the go to personality traits she had that the writers often made jokes at the expense of was that she was a cat lover. She was. You know, I think supposed to be a. They, no one ever called her a crazy cat lady, but that was clearly the the stereotype they were going for. Um, she was a little too interested in her cats. She had maybe a, a few too many cats to be entirely normal. She was much more quote unquote obsessed with her cats than a quote unquote normal person would be. Um, I, I didn't necessarily love that at all. Um, there, there were some times where thing, you know, there, there was a, a famous um, cold open for one of the episodes where they think the office is on fire, and you see that Angela has been keeping one of her cats in her filing cabinet, and she throws someone is is in the roof trying to get out of the building to go get help because all the windows and doors are sealed. It's a long story. Anyway, she throws her cat up into the ceiling to trying to get it to the person who is crawling away through the ceiling for help. He misses the cat. The cat falls through the ceiling tile back onto the floor and, and seems to be okay. But again, you know, like like why throwing a cat was even a funny thing to do in the first place, because, uh, you know, I was going to say not to harp on this point, but I am kind of harping on this point. If it were a puppy or a dog that she was tossing around, no one would think that was particularly funny. I understand cats are supposed to land on their feet and blah, 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 but nevertheless, um, but but the bigger issue, there was a whole storyline that took up the better part of a season where Angela, one of her cats, is is old, is a senior cat who has various health problems and needs to have – I mean, and we've all been there, right? Um, where you have a cat who you have to pill and apply cream and give a shot. Um, Vashti, for, for the last year of her life, she was my project. Keeping her alive – was my project. And there was a lot of physical care that was involved with her shots and the subcutaneous fluid injections and the pills she had to get a couple of times a day and so on and so forth. Um, Something comes up at work. She's not able to provide this care for her cat one day. Um, And right off the top, by the way, as she's listing all of the the problems with the cat and and the various medications that the cat needs to have, um, like already, this is supposed to be kind of funny that this woman is so crazy about her cats and is so obsessed with her cats that she's keeping this old, infirm cat alive. Like, like, like the effort she's putting into keeping this cat alive is in and of itself already supposed to be funny. Um, but she asks her boyfriend, who is also her coworker, uh, who is a farmer, to take care, you know, to go to her house that day and give the cat his medication and apply the various ointments and so on and so forth. Anyway, um, her boyfriend ends up killing the cat. He believes it's a mercy killing because the cat is old and sick and he's a farmer and animals should have um, some sort of utilitarian value. And if they don't, then there's no point in keeping them around anyway. I'm talking kind of fast. If you haven't watched the show and you're sitting here thinking, how is this a plot line on a sitcom? In what way is this funny? Um, you 
are pretty much reading my mind. Look, I, I did keep watching the show. So I I cannot say that I was I, I, I understood what they were going for. Although this one also sat badly with me, not just because of the cruelty to the animal involved, but because I, I actually knew someone once that this happened to where she had an elderly cat um, and a guy who liked her um, broke into her apartment and killed the cat supposedly to help her because he knew how upset she was about the cat. And obviously this is a very disturbed individual and law enforcement had to get involved. And there's really never any good scenario in which an intimate partner harms one of your cats where it's not a tremendous red flag. Any, and I didn't, I understand it's a sitcom. I understand that that they're operating in a heightened sort of reality and things that would be considered very untoward or or not funny or inappropriate for the workplace or however you want to put it in real life work in the context of this being a sitcom and you should take it in the spirit in which it's offered. And and certainly I, I have made wide a lot. Again, even up to I, I understood what they were going for with this character um, but every character on a sitcom, especially, I mean, she was a second tier character. She wasn't a star, the star of the show. And they always have, you know, some quirk or personality trait that gets really, really exaggerated and then really played up for laughs. And and that's just how sitcoms work and fine. Her being a, a quote unquote crazy cat lady did not in and of itself bother me. Um, this storyline really bothered me. And it bothered me for two reasons. Again, the first being that just as a woman, I don't, there is no good scenario in which a man, I mean, in in this show, he's still like, he's a decent guy who's in love with her. And we're supposed to sort of feel bad that the two of them broke up and we're supposed to kind of root for them to get back together. Um, Whereas in real life, any intimate partner who harms one of your cats is someone you should break up with immediately and change your locks, and get a restraining order. I'm really not kidding. Um, that That is, somebody who would harm a cat would harm you. It, it really is just that simple. Um, and probably is harming your cat only to harm you, at least emotionally and psychologically. So I, I didn't like that storyline being played for laughs already. But again, it also goes to, you know, if, if it had been a dog... If he had killed her dog, I just don't think there's any scenario or or any way in which the writers would have expected us to find that amusing. Um, There would have been nothing funny, quote unquote, about him killing her dog, about him stuffing her dog full of Benadryl and then shoving him into the freezer. And then it turns out it wasn't even really dead when he went in the freezer because there are claw marks on on some of the stuff in the freezer showing that the dog was trying to get out, which, again, is a detail that we were offered about the cat. Um, You know, and, and, and this really I, I could come up with more examples probably in your own in your own observations and your own experiences, you've seen something similar as well. A situation where some anything from minor to major harm is inflicted on a cat and it's supposed to be funny in ways that that no one would consider, but in a scenario that no one would consider funny if it was a dog instead. And I just wonder why that is. Uh, if Is it 
I, I do believe that cats are inherently funnier than dogs. Um, not that it's a contest, but I think that's why there are so many more cat videos than there are dog videos. So many more funny cat videos than dog videos. And this is actually true. There are more cat videos than dog videos on the internet. I'll probably not that many more. But I think that's because cat I mean cats are are nature's comedians and I say this all the time and cats just do doofy silly unpredictable things. I think cats are unpredictable in ways that dogs are not. I think the cats just because they're they're so much more physically dexterous I think than dogs. They they there's just so much more they can do with their bodies in terms of flipping and jumping. And so they are just more apt to do funny things or to try to jump at something and miss and fall down. And, oh, my God, that's funny. And that is funny. I, I'm i just not sure. I, I, I'm not even sure if I'm angry about it or not. I, I am angry about this storyline on The Office. Um, I, I'm not sure if I'm angry about it or not. I, I, I would love to hear from some people who work in rescue the extent to which you think – this kind of attitude towards cats leads to actual real world physical abuse of cats, if that is the case. I wonder if cats are more are subjected to more abuse than dogs are. I have never seen any statistics on this. I don't really know. So I don't really know if this sort of attitude is contributing to any kind of a real world problem. And if it's not, I should probably just let it go. Um, I'm just... Uh, you know, and, and I like to think I'm a person with a reasonably good sense of humor. It's not that I can't laugh at myself or that I can't laugh at cats. So I don't know. And maybe this is just me, but this is something that I've noticed. And I have been noticing lately that this this book that I did end up reading was really kind of what, what put it in my head recently. But yeah, I'd be curious to see what you guys have to say or what you think about that. And speaking of that, um, I do want to before wrapping up today's podcast, I do want to come back and, and thank so many of you. I heard from so many of you about Homer's Odyssey and, and the ongoing situation with the book not being in print. Um, I, I don't want to talk too much about it. I, I had a long conversation last week with, I guess, not not my agent, but with the book's agent. And and I think I explained that the agent who originally represented the book has retired um, somebody else at her agency kind of inherited the book and and still acts as a liaison between me and the publisher on matters related to the book. And and he and I had a very long conversation last week. Um, I am cautiously optimistic that something, you know, that this that that something will happen um at some point within the next few weeks one way or the other. Uh, but again, I, I don't know. So we will see how it goes. But in the meantime, I, I really cannot begin to thank you enough, those of you who reached out to me. I mean, your your offers to assist or to assist me and to, to write angry letters and circulate a petition or flyers and all of that were, were meant a great deal to me. Um, but what really brought me to tears were the the lovely notes that many of you sent about what the book had meant to you, how it reflected the way you felt about your own cat. I mean, that that's really right. How it felt, how, the way it reflected how you felt about your own cats, 
Um, so many of you shared amazing rescue stories with me, which again, I, I really, it's just the greatest, the greatest thing that has resulted from my writing about cats. And, and it was the one back, God, back, way back when I was first considering writing Homer's Odyssey. Uh, it, it really, like I said, just, I've said this before, it just never, never occurred to me um, that the, the unforeseen reward that I would get from this book was that I would end up being in, in contact with so many amazing, you know, that in writing about my cat, I would end up in contact with so many amazing humans uh, who really do restore my faith in the human race daily. So thank you from the bottom of my heart for all of that. Uh, I will keep you posted as events unfold. But right now we're in a little bit of a holding pattern, and that's not necessarily a bad thing. And we will see where it all goes. Uh, but in the meantime, I'm going to wrap it up for now. Those of you who are planning on hitting your own independent bookstores, your local independent bookstores this weekend, I encourage you to do so. And if you are going to be participating in the Brooklyn Book Crawl this weekend, perhaps our paths will cross out there in, in the wild. Uh, and for everybody else, thanks so much for listening. And please, I hope you will join me again next week for another all new episode. And that concludes this episode of Curl Up with a Cattail with Gwen Cooper. Don't forget to invite your feline loving friends to listen to new episodes along with you. If you'd like to subscribe to this podcast, find out how to get your name and your cat's name included in my next book, or leave comments or questions for me to answer in future podcasts, head on over to GwenCooper.com now. Thanks so much for joining me, and don't forget to hug your cat today.